Welcome to Andrew's Audio Tours of Early Christian Rome, the podcast that helps you see how Rome's most famous sites are connected to the New Testament and the early church. This series of tours is designed to be used on the ground. Listen along and I'll walk you through what you see while you're standing at a particular spot in Rome. These are video podcasts, which means that there are images embedded at certain points. Depending on the device that you're using, you should be able to see some photos on your screen that will help you get the most out of this tour. Listener Donald Griffith wanted to know if there was a connection between the Circus Maximus and the New Testament book of James. The Circus Maximus was the oldest and largest stadium in the city of Rome, and even today, its 600-meter length dominates the area in which it sits. But does this site intersect at all with the New Testament? Well, I wouldn't say that there's exactly a connection, but I do think there's an interesting contrast between the way in which the Circus Maximus and the Book of James represent generosity and concern for the poor. This tour involves no walking. Just find a good spot that overlooks the Circus Maximus. For the purpose of this tour, I'll assume that you're standing on the southwest side so that you're standing on the long side looking across to the Imperial Palace on the Palatine Hill. But anywhere that you're overlooking the circus will do. Restart your tour when you're in the right spot. In the ancient world, a circus was not a traveling roadshow with clowns and tamed animals. A circus was a type of structure used for open-air entertainment. The maximus means greatest or largest, so this is the biggest circus, the Circus Maximus. Circuses across the empire had a similar format. They were basically rectangular in shape, except that one of the short ends of the rectangle was a rounded semicircle. In the Circus Maximus, that rounded end is on the southeast side, or to the right if you're facing the Imperial Palace on the Palatine Hill. The tower that you see to the southeast is part of a medieval fortification. It was not part of the ancient circus. While a circus could serve many functions, they were very commonly used for racing. Therefore, a median, called the spina, ran most of the length of the trek. The spina was decorated with columns, statues, and obelisks. The most popular sport in the circus was, without doubt, chariot racing. You can see a reenactment on your screen, but think of Ben-Hur. Chariots would line up at the starting gates, and at the signal, racers would drive their chariots along the spina until they reached the far end. Each end of the spina was called a meta, or a turning point. Racers would turn at the meta, and then race back to circle the other meta, thus completing one lap. Races involved multiple laps. Spectators sat along the longer edges to watch the races and cheer on their favorite teams. Teams were color-coded, and for the majority of the imperial period, there were four teams. The reds, the whites, the blues, and the greens. Ancient audiences were just as devoted to their teams as we are to ours today. It was not unheard of for spectators to riot when their team won or lost. Though chariot racing was most popular, a number of other games might be held in the circus, such as horse races and long-distance foot races. It's probably a long-distance foot race that Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 has in mind, when it encourages readers to remember the great audience that's watching and to run with endurance the course that has been marked out. It's an image of spectators gathered in the stands of a circus, 
as the athletes run their laps around the course. Hebrews takes that common image from city life around the empire and translates it to a spiritual image of running the course of life in view of the audience of faithful believers. Today, most of what you can see in this spot is the outline of the Circus Maximus. While there are a few exposed remains, most of what's left is buried several meters underground. When you look down into the Circus, you're looking into the valley between the Aventine and the Palatine Hills. So debris accumulation and water logging at this low point has always been a challenge that has prevented serious excavation. You can see some interesting remnants of the Circus Maximus elsewhere in Rome. The Piazza del Popolo contains an enormous obelisk, about 25 meters tall. That obelisk was created in Egypt around 1280 BC. The Romans were fascinated with Egypt because the antiquity of Egypt made their own civilization seem like a spring chicken by comparison. So around 10 BC, almost 1300 years after it was created, the Emperor Augustus brought this obelisk to Rome to decorate the spina of the Circus Maximus. If Peter or Paul walked by the Circus Maximus during their time in Rome, they would have seen this obelisk. It was moved to its present location in the Piazza del Popolo in 1589. Another Egyptian obelisk was brought to decorate the spina much later, in 357 AD. This obelisk was carved in Egypt around 1500 BC, and Constantine wanted to take it to his new capital of Constantinople. But it sat on an Egyptian dock for about 25 years until his son, Constantius II, decided to bring it to decorate the spina of the Circus Maximus in 357 AD. It was moved to its present location in the piazza outside St. John Lateran in 1588. Who paid for the games that were held here in the circus? Wealthy benefactors. During the earlier Republican period, games would have been organized by the Ediles, minor elected officials on their way to more important offices. In the later imperial period in which Christianity arose, games here were sponsored by the emperors. Why would they do that? Why would they sponsor these games? Quite simply, for the prestige. Ediles during the Republican period wanted to demonstrate their generosity and concern for the public good by hosting the games, so that they would be seen as suitable for election to more important positions. During the imperial period, the emperors sponsored the games for the public to earn their goodwill and to retain their grip on the throne. In political contexts today, we sometimes use the phrase bread and circuses to describe a policy that wins immediate public approval rather than addressing long-term needs. This phrase originated during the Roman Empire when a poet named Juvenal noted that emperors could earn public favor by providing free grain and free entertainment in venues like the Circus Maximus. During the Christian period, the Circus Maximus was a prime venue to increase the prestige of the emperors through these free games like chariot races. That may seem very cynical to us, but it's in keeping with larger attitudes in the Greek and Roman world toward wealth and generosity. Generosity was certainly seen as a virtue, and being generous was frequently seen as an important part of a moral life. But that hits on a key reason that people were generous. The wealthy were generous because generosity was seen as a virtue. The wealthy received social approval when they were generous. And in many cases, being generous brought further social or political advancement which in turn brought more wealth. 
it was in the best interest of the wealthy for them to be generous to society. And the generosity of the wealthy was largely directed towards society as a whole. The poor were not singled out for special treatment, and there were very few social initiatives designed to care specifically for the poor. So, for example, it was seen as a very generous act for a wealthy citizen to build a public library for their city. There's a famous example in Ephesus that still survives today. That library was a public good for all of society, not just for the poor. Indeed, a library might be least useful to the poor, who might not even be literate enough to make use of a library. From the Greco-Roman perspective, an emperor sponsoring free games in the Circus Maximus was an excellent way to use wealth for the public good, and it brought prestige and approval for the emperor. The Jewish perspective and the Christian perspective that emerged from it were very different. The letter of James is a perfect illustration of this divergence on generosity and care for the poor. The letter of James claims to be written by someone named James. The traditional Christian view is that this James was the brother of Jesus, but James was a very common name at the time, so it's hard to say anything definitive. Christianity is a faith that emerged from Judaism, and the letter of James seems to reflect that combined Jewish-Christian perspective. There are very few references to Jesus in the letter of James, and most of the content in James would fit in either a Jewish or a Christian context. Some scholars speculate that much of this teaching may originally have been Jewish, and the author of James just lightly adapted it for a Christian audience. But regardless of the author or the circumstances in which the letter was composed, the point is that it definitely seems to reflect a worldview that you would expect of a Jewish or Jewish-Christian context, most likely in Palestine. And the letter of James reflects a very different attitude toward generosity and the poor than what we see in the larger Greek and Roman world. The first chapter of James encourages the poor to take pride in their circumstances and claims that the poor are really the ones in a high position. By contrast, the rich are told to take pride in their humiliation because they will soon die in the same way that the sun scorches and withers flowers on a hot day. In chapter 2, believers are told not to show more respect for a wealthy person who attends worship. The rich and the poor should be treated equally in the community because God regards them equally. Chapter 5 presents a horrifying description of punishment for the rich who have obtained their wealth at the expense of the poor. At minimum, the letter of James seems to demand that the rich and poor be treated equally, but it seems more plausible that James expects the poor to be an object of special care and concern. This concern for the poor and for generosity toward the poor is reflective of the wider Jewish and Christian attitude. The Christian faith seems to have been concerned with organized poverty relief from the very beginning. Jesus taught his followers that caring for the poor was morally equivalent to caring for Jesus himself. The book of Acts speaks about the first followers of Jesus designating seven men to oversee the distribution of food to impoverished widows. In the 40s and 50s, Paul was focused on raising money among churches in Greece and Asia Minor to send to poor Christians in Jerusalem. In the early 200s, Tertullian writes about how each church collected money from worshipers to care for the poor, to bury people who were too poor to afford it themselves, to care for orphans, 
and to support those who have been shipwrecked or experienced other disasters. In the mid-250s, Cornelius, the bishop of the city of Rome, wrote that the churches of Rome financially supported over 1,500 people in poverty. When the Christian faith moved out of Palestine, it encountered that Mediterranean culture that valued generosity, yes, but not exactly generosity for the poor. In Greco-Roman culture, generosity meant grand spectacles in the circus. In Christian culture, generosity meant quietly providing bread for widows and orphans. Predictably, it was poorer individuals who first took note of the care that Christians showed to the lower classes. And as a result, the poor flocked to join the Christian movement and receive the care that churches offered. Eventually, all of Greco-Roman society came to see the differences between Christian generosity and their own. Julian, the last pagan emperor, tried to stop the rising tide of Christianity and revive traditional Roman religion. One tactic Julian tried was a massive food distribution along the Christian lines. He organized food giveaways for the poor, for strangers, and for beggars. Julian explained his reason for this as follows, quote, it is disgraceful that the impious Christians support not only their own poor, but ours as well. And everyone sees that our people lack aid from us, end quote. But since the Mediterranean became Christian rather than remaining pagan, you can probably guess how Julian's project worked out. Thanks, Donald, for that question. I would never have considered a connection between the Circus Maximus and the Book of James, but standing above this site is a good place to ponder the early church's attitude toward those in need. I doubt the new faith would have been as successful in the Roman world without its preferential concern for the poor. That's all for now. Gavin Spell is our audio engineer for these tours, and he also performs our music. If you have feedback about these tours, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at andrew at andrewgarnett.org. That's A-N-D-R-E-W at A-N-D-R-E-W-G-A-R-N-E-T-T dot org. I hope that we meet again soon, and for both of our sakes, when we do, I hope that we're standing in the streets of the Eternal City. Thank you.